going to read together from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Why don't you read this with me this morning? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your unrelenting goodness and kindness toward your people and your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for the promise of your word that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. Father, what goodness and kindness you've shown us that we who were sinners cut off and separated from you, you have pursued us. And you sent your son Jesus to be the goodness that we could never be. And we who are in you are filled with his goodness by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray that your goodness would be known to us this morning through real and tangible ways. Father, for the person who's here today who struggles to rest in the security of knowing that they belong to you, would they know your goodness? Father, for the person who maybe is in a church for the first time or is coming back to the church for the first time in a long time, would they see in a real and tangible way that you are good and know your goodness? Father, this morning our own community grieves following tragedy yesterday on the bridge and we pray even in this moment that your grace and your peace would be known. And even in the midst of sorrow and suffering and tragedy, would your mercy and your grace and your peace and your justice be known and seen. So Father, we surrender our hearts and our minds to you. Holy Spirit, we yield to you. Will you take these words and make us more like Jesus Christ? We ask all these things in his precious and holy name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Good morning to those of you joining us online uh, via live stream as well. If you're here with us today for the first time, last week we started a new message series through the book of Philippians called Invincible Joy. And uh, Lord willing, our plan throughout this fall is to walk through the book of Philippians verse by verse. We'll be working through verses 3 through 8 this morning. Uh, earlier this week, this past Monday, Monday morning, my middle son, Nolan, who's five, came up to me uh, with a Lego instruction book for an airplane early in the morning. He said, hey, Dad, can we put this together? Now, uh, one thing you need to know about this particular airplane is that it has, in fact, been assembled multiple times uh, before. But like every good child, our boys like to build Legos and then destroy them. And so what we have, essentially, at our house are very few actual completed Lego projects intact. 
And we have thousands of Legos uh, that are mix and match from different sets that are scattered in uh, plastic storage boxes all over our home. So uh, I'm telling Nolan, I'm like, buddy, it's uh, morning. You've got to go to school today, and this is going to take a very long time. But we'll, we'll do this when I get back home later on this evening. So uh, I drive home later that evening desperately hoping that my son has forgotten about this. Um, because I know what this is going to entail, but sure enough, I walk through the door. Nolan's probably one of our more uh, persistent boys, and he is waiting for me at the door. He's got his little booklet. He says, Dad, can we build my plane? I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. So we get a couple of these Lego boxes. I'm talking about thousands of Legos, just mix and match from box to box, and we start doing our very best. I lay out this instruction booklet, and we're digging through all the boxes, and we're trying to find all of the right parts for this particular Lego set. Um, but what ends up happening is for about 30 minutes, 30 minutes, I'm digging through multiple boxes, and I, I barely get to the point that we've assembled like 10 Legos to make up the, ba- the foundational base of the plane. Now, Nolan, like most kids during these things, he's kind of checked out already at this point. Like, he's going to go do other things in the general proximity while dad slaves away and does his work for him. And so 30 minutes into this, I, I barely got the airplane base together, and he comes up to me, and he goes, hey, it's not finished yet. And I'm like, thank you for that observation and for your support and encouragement while I do this for you. And, and so we had to pause for dinner. We get back from dinner. And then for like the next hour and a half, two hours almost, we're still digging through the boxes. And then eventually little brother came in, and he's helping us dig through the boxes. And he's trying to find pieces as well, although for little brother, sometimes helping actually looks more like destroying. And so that created its own set of challenges. But finally, after a couple of hours, we got this thing about 90% intact. And I said, buddy, we got to wave the white flag on tonight, right? I was like, you got school in the morning. It's getting late. you got to go get ready for bed. Uh, but he was content with this because what we had pretty much was the airplane. There were a few of the finishing touches that weren't quite there, but he was content with knowing eventually we're going to come back and we're going to complete this project. Now, for, for many of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, in a lot of ways, Nolan's destroyed Lego project laying in a million pieces feels a lot like our experience walking with the Lord. You know, what at one point in time felt like it was whole and complete and intact has now been shattered and scattered into a million different pieces. Except unlike Nolan, a lot of times what happens when we get in these moments is instead of coming to the Father and instead of coming to the church and involving those who can help us pull things back together, we try to handle things on our own. So we jump from place to place, we jump from relationship to relationship, we jump from circumstance to circumstance. We go running after all the self-help materials in the world, but what we find very quickly is that ourselves are not very much help at all. And we we get stuck in these cycles of emptiness and brokenness, and the enemy just bombards us with the guilt and the shame and the failure and the belief that the Lord won't forgive us one more time. He convinces us that we've broken it one too many times, that it's too scattered, it's too broken, it's too spread out, and there's nothing that the Lord is going to do to pull this back together. So this morning, our time is going to be a little bit short together. Our time is going to be brief, and I'll share more about why that is here in just a little bit. Uh, But if I could really just cut to the chase this morning, the central truth we are going to see in this passage of Scripture, church, is this. The Lord will finish what he started. The Lord will finish the work that he started in us. And the way he's going to complete this work is through the ministry of the local church. Through the fellowship of the body of the believers, the Lord is going to finish the work that he started within us when he saved us. So let's read again from Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We see first from this passage that we are partners in the gospel. Together, we are partners in the gospel. The Apostle Paul, we saw last week, loves this church. He loves this church, and we see it evident in verse 3. Every time they come to mind, he says, he expresses gratitude and thanksgiving and praise to God for their influence and presence in his life. And so even as he's sitting here chained in a prison cell, what brings him joy is remembering his ministry and his gospel partnership with the Philippian church. And it's the reason he has this joy is because of their faithful partnership in the gospel. That they have remained steadfast. They've remained with Paul. They've not abandoned him even though he's locked in prison. Now, uh, several weeks back, we were studying through Acts chapter 2, and we looked a lot at the word fellowship, koinonia, and what that meant for followers of Jesus, meaning that, that it was, uh, as a church, something that was so much bigger than just Sunday morning. These were shared lives that these people lived with one another. And this term partnership that Paul uses in Philippians 1 is very, very similar to that word fellowship that we saw in Acts chapter 2 something that we share in common with another person, and it's a partnership that's forged when two or more people enter into a joint venture together. So just think about, you know, for example, a law firm or an accounting firm. Two business partners come together, they put both of their names on the outside, and this is really what Paul is saying he has done with the church at Philippi. They are partners in the gospel. This first century church was heavily marked by sharing. They shared their lives. They shared their money. They shared their home. They shared their possessions. They shared their food. They saw nothing as belonging to themselves, the book of Acts says. But the primary interest they shared that bound them together was the message of the gospel. This united them across all fronts. And so every time Paul prays for them, he remembers them and he makes every prayer with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. We saw last week that the apostle Paul had planted the church in Philippi 10 years earlier. At this miraculous beginning, there was a very wealthy, successful businesswoman named Lydia who he led to Christ. And then after this, it was a formerly demon-possessed slave girl who had a fortune-telling business. She's led to Christ. And then it's a blue-collar worker, just a prison guard, hard worker kind of guy who hears the message of the gospel, and he comes to Christ. And so over a decade later, they've become this healthy, growing, vibrant church, and they've continued to support Paul relationally. They've supported him financially, and they've supported him spiritually, even in spite of his imprisonment. And, and being imprisoned, like, like almost any single culture, to be imprisoned or to be associated with someone with prison was often very much heavily marked by shame. But, but just because Paul's in prison has not broken his fellowship with the church in Philippi. He's writing from a prison in Rome. He's over 800 miles away from these people. It's been a decade since he planted the church, but they forged an inseparable bond through the ministry of the gospel. There was no distance. There was no time. There was no struggle that was going to separate this. Earlier this past week, I saw this really powerful picture. I don't know exactly how old it was. I can't quite remember, but it was part of an article that I was reading. And and it was about a a group of men who were in the 101st Airborne who jumped into Normandy uh, during World War II. And so uh, most of these guys had not seen each other for decades, and there was a reunion that pulled them back together. And and so they staged this picture, and they they put it right next to an original picture where these guys were sitting in the back of their aircraft. They're sitting on the bench in the same order they were seated the night before they jumped in uh, to Normandy. And then they staged this picture again decades later of them sitting in the exact same order. It's an incredibly powerful picture. And listen, this is my personal opinion, greatest generation that has ever walked the face of the earth. No question in my mind whatsoever. And they come back, most of them had not seen each other for decades, but what happened is that together they were forged in fire. 
They walked through a literal hell on earth in the coming months. And even though they had not seen each other for decades and and had not even had all sort of of relational contact the way that they would have liked to have or seen each other very much, the moment they came back together, they started sharing the stories. And there were hugs and there were tears. There was a joy that was forged because they had walked with each other through these trials. They made sacrifice and they made sacrifice and they made sacrifice for us and, and for everybody who would follow in their footsteps because of the work that they did. D.A. Carson has said very well that the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to shared vision. This is the heartbeat of true fellowship. Now, let's all just be honest here for for just a moment. We can do this because we're we're humans and we all have our own specific preferences. Let's just be honest. If, If we got exactly what we wanted, if everything happened exactly the way we wanted it to, even our own local church here would probably look a little bit different. Like, if we all got our exact personal preferences, everything here would probably look a little bit different. I can honestly tell you this morning, again, I'm, I'm not president, chairman, CEO, okay? I'm accountable to a board of elders. I do not get to make decisions unilaterally here. We don't do things exactly the way I would like to do everything. And, and that's okay. We all bring different preferences. We all bring different backgrounds. We all bring different perspectives to the table. And, and so what has to happen is we have to be willing to sacrifice a lot of those things for the sake of a common vision, so again, for some, you know, just depending on your background, depending on, on your priorities, uh, some are going to have different opinions on preaching and teaching. Some are going to have different opinions on music. Some are going to have different opinions and preferences on programs that the church offers. You know, for those who are maybe a little bit more cerebral and academic in nature, they're going to say, no, the, the church needs to come together. It needs to be study, 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 study. And others are, man, you're very people-oriented and you're mission-oriented. You say, no, 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 outreach, outreach, outreach. That's what needs to happen. And so uh, for some, you're, you're like, man, what we need to do is come together and teach in a way that's, that's just like, I, I just want to get smarter every single week. We need to go digging deep doctrinally and theologically into the meat of Scripture. And others say, no, like we need to be working to reach a lost world that's disengaged with the church. So we need teaching and preaching that's accessible and practical. And listen, we really need all of it, right? But we need all of it. And so it's, it's not wrong to have these different preferences. Here's where we go wrong. It's when we convince ourselves in our mind that the church isn't going to be right until all of our individual preferences are met. That's where things go wrong. When we convince ourselves that our church will be right and everything will be healthy when we all conform to personal preference. But that's not the heart and the foundation of the church. It's not preference, it's sacrifice. Tony Morita, in his uh, commentary on the book of Philippians, he's noted that there are four obstacles that will keep you from having a full and joyful relationship with the local church. Four obstacles. He calls them uh, sensationalism, mysticism, idealism, and individualism. I'm going to work through each one of these just very, very briefly. So the sensationalists, this is what they say. that They don't find the church really uh, exciting or entertaining enough. And so they really just don't participate. They don't get the same emotional rush that they might get from other forms of entertainment, from movies or from going to games, watching games, and where they might get it for a season from the church, but then the moment they no longer get it, they go chasing after the next big emotional experience or rush that comes along with that. So that's a sensationalist. The mystic thinks that following Jesus is a series of quiet times. It's just this very much just me and Jesus mentality that, hey, as long as, as I'm, I'm just kind of in the word on my own to sort of live this monastic life, I don't really need fellowship with other people, just me and the Lord, I'm perfectly fine to each his own, but this is going to be me. And then there's the idealist. They have what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls a wish dream of a church. 
meaning that there are impossible expectations that they hold that absolutely no church is ever capable of meeting. And then there's the individualist. Their only connection to the church, I think we look in the 21st century, would be online only. Now, I know it's 2020, and so online is like much more necessary than, than it has been before, but just generally speaking, this is the type of person who thinks uh, church is really just about what I need to get. And so as, as long as I just tune in once a week, or as long as I show up once a week, and I just listen into a sermon, I have fulfilled my responsibility to the church. But none of this reflects the New Testament vision for the body of believers. None of this does. For the sensationalists, they need to understand, listen, the church does not primarily exist for our entertainment. It doesn't exist for our entertainment. The church exists to equip us to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And listen, parents, we have to be very, very careful with this because there's some ways, listen, I do it, you've probably done this. There's some ways where we probably implicitly encourage our kids to think that it's about entertainment. So like our, our kids, they're cross kids this morning. They're going to hear a great message. We're going to point them to the message of the gospel. But God help us, what, what are most of us going to ask them when we pick them up? Did you have fun? Like as if that's the primary concern that we have. And if they didn't have fun, it's like, what? Can't come back here anymore. We have to be very, very careful. And listen, I hope our kids have a blast this morning. Our, our, our kids team is amazing and they're going to do everything they can to make it fun and to make it engaging. But our primary concern is not their entertainment. It's not your entertainment. It's that you be equipped with the message of the gospel. That's what we have to be after. For the mystic, they have to understand there is no churchless Christianity in the New Testament. That there's no religion in the New Testament is totally foreign to the New Testament, this just me and Jesus mentality. The message of the New Testament is not just me and Jesus. The message of the New Testament is we and Jesus. It's us together collectively as the body of Christ, and just me and Jesus is an altogether different faith. For the individualist, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, the church is absolutely more than the building, but it is definitely not less than the gathering. But even in the gathering, we have a responsibility to one another, Hebrews 10, to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So we have a responsibility not just to show up, but to serve and to give and to lock arms together and advance the message of the gospel in our world. We have a greater responsibility than tuning in and listening to a message and just getting what we need for the week and then going about our business. And then for the idealist, listen, you, you just got to understand there is no perfect congregation. None. You know, I always laugh a little bit internally, honestly, whenever I hear someone say, hey, I can't be a part of a church in today's culture because it's nothing like the New Testament church. You want to talk about the New Testament church for a second? Like, we, we, can, we can play this game. I mean, let, let's just look through the letters that were written by the Apostle Paul. The types of things that Paul had to address in the first century church. So many today, you know, we would rightly say, well, man, I'm, I'm never going to be a part of any church that, that has any sort of, of ethnic or racial segregation issues. Understand, you couldn't have been a part of the church in Rome. They had massive divide between Jew and Gentile. Paul had to write to address this. It doesn't make it right, but we need to acknowledge the reality that it did exist in the first century church. He said, I can't be part of a church that, that's, that has people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, but they're living a worldly lifestyle. They're sleeping around. They're partying on the weekends. You definitely couldn't have been a part of the church in Corinth. He said, I'm not going to be a part of any church that's full of a bunch of legalistic, overbearing, rule-keeping Pharisees. You definitely could have been a part of the church in Galatia. He said, I'm never going to be a part of a large church. A church is a place where everybody should know everybody. You definitely couldn't have been a part of the church in Ephesus. He said, I'm never going to be a part of a church where the people just can't get along. 
Listen, Paul loved the church in Philippians, but we'll see it here in several weeks. They had some major division within the body, and he had to write and address these things. See, I can't be a part of a church that's being influenced by worldly philosophy. You couldn't have been part of the church in Colossae. I can't be a part of a church where the people have grown lazy, and they're, they're just kind of dead and cold, and they're not busy on mission, and they're just sort of waiting for Jesus to come back. You couldn't have been part of the church in Thessalonica. Do you see my point? There's never been a point in time in the history of the church that it was not full of broken, imperfect people. Again, we look at this today and say, I can't be a part of the church, too many hypocrites. No, friend, there's always room for one more. Every single one of us have failed in some capacity. The church has been and always will be full of broken, imperfect people. And what happens is this. So many of us, I fear, we become so in love with our idea of what church should look like that we never get to experience the beautiful redemption that takes place as God works through a body of broken, imperfect people. We never get to experience this. And, and if I could just push a, a little bit further, I, I fear maybe even what happens in our own congregation sometimes is you live here each week feeling disappointed, and you, you live here each week just, just sort of not feeling like that met your specific needs, and it may be because you're expecting something from me, and you're expecting something from the church as an organization that you can only find in Jesus Christ. Tonight, later this evening, uh, we'll, we'll have about 20, 25 people come to our office. They're going through Crosspoint, which is our covenant membership class. And those of you who have been through Crosspoint, you know this. There's a letter I've written on the inside cover of the book. It's, it's stayed there for the last couple of years. And, and, and pretty much all we promise in that letter is that at some point in time, we're going to let you down. It's one of the final lines in, in the letter. It's probably the worst sales pitch of all time. It just says, we're not a perfect church. We're not a perfect church. But then it closes by saying this, we just worship a perfect Christ. So what we have to commit ourselves to doing as broken, imperfect, hypocritical, sinful people is not being perfection for one another, but continuously pointing each other to the perfection that we can find in Jesus Christ. Healthy church is never going to be built on the preferences of a few. Healthy churches are built on the sacrifices of the whole. What are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? What are we willing to sacrifice so that the mission and the name of Jesus Christ can go forward? Because self-sacrifice, not self-preference, is the foundation of gospel partnership. And you'll never experience invincible joy in Jesus Christ apart from an inseparable bond with the local church. We are called to be partners with one another. Verses 6 through 8. Paul says this. This is so good. And I am sure of this. So Paul's like, church, take this to the bank. He says, I am confident in this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, I mean, cue the band, let's go home, right? That is such good news for us. This is such good news for us. He will bring this work to completion. And Paul says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul says that we are partners in the gospel. Second, he shows us we are partakers of grace. We are partners in the gospel, and the foundation of that partnership is that we have all been those who partake of the divine grace that's been shown to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 6 really summarizes for us uh, the three major components of our salvation in one main sentence. 
So in our salvation, there's, there's three great works that God accomplishes. After we've had the work of regeneration, that is having new hearts, we've responded and repented of our sin, we've believed in the gospel, God does the work of justification, sanctification, and glorification. So justification is a legal term. What it tells us is that we've been acquitted of sin and we have been declared righteous and innocent before God. We are blameless in his sight. The judge has pronounced that we are free of sin, that we can walk free of sin from death, from its consequences. If we were to die in that moment, we would stand confidently before the just judge of the universe. But then God also does this work of sanctification. Now this is a work that is both instant and progressive. It's instant in that the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are made pure and blameless and holy in the eyes of God. And yet, because of the ongoing power and presence of sin in our world and in our lives, this process of sanctification is a process and it's progressively happening in our lives. And day by day, God is conforming us more to the image of his son Jesus. And this is a work that will happen and take place until we get to this final phase, glorification. And what glorification is for us is the promise that one day, church, we will be free from sin. One day we will be free from sin. One day we will be free from sickness. One day we will be free from death. Our sanctification is going to be complete. The airplane is going to get done and we will be forever made present and perfect in the presence of Jesus Christ. And this is the confidence that we get to rest in. So justification says, I've been saved. Sanctification says, I'm being saved. Glorification is the confidence that says, I will be saved. If you are truly in Jesus Christ, God will complete the work that he started in you because he leaves no project unfinished. He who began the work will bring it to completion. I shared this just a few weeks ago, but I felt like this morning it was just, honestly woke up with this on my mind today and felt like this was too good not to share again. I've always loved how Tony Evans says, a great Bible teacher, Tony Evans, if you're not familiar with him. Tony Evans says that God is both alpha and omega, and he does not alpha what he won't omega. He's the beginning and the end. If he has started the work, he is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Theologically, we call this doctrine the perseverance of the saints. And what this doctrine essentially says is that those who are truly in Jesus Christ will never walk away. We saw this as we studied the Gospel of John this past summer, the I am statements made by Jesus. It says, all that the Father has given me will come to me and I will not lose a single one. We're secure in Jesus Christ and listen, this has become a bit more popular, a bit more mainstream in our culture the last couple of years, what's become known as the deconversion story. It's a pretty popular phenomenon on social media, and it's, it's pretty simple. It's someone, uh, sometimes it's a high-profile Bible teacher, maybe a former pastor, a very influential follower of Christ, and what they'll do is, is they will essentially publicly renounce their faith. And they'll tell a story of a bad experience that they had and seasons of doubt that they've walked through and how things just don't make sense anymore and how they've got to go on a new journey and, and try to figure things out on their own. And they're just not certain that we can know anything at all. And, and they will essentially say, this is me walking away from the faith. And church, understand, this is a very, very difficult pill to swallow, but it is true on the authority of God's word nonetheless. Those who walk away from Christ were never truly in Christ. We studied the book of 1 John three years ago as a church family, and, and John makes it so abundantly clear, writing towards the end of his life with urgency about the authenticity of salvation. And John makes it clear in, in these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
So for those who have uh, no submission whatsoever to the authority of God's word, for those who walk in open, unrepentant rebellion and sin, for those who have no fellowship, no desire to be in fellowship with the body of believers, we have no reason to believe that this person is a follower of Christ. John says it in 1 John 2.19, plain and simple, he says, they went out from among us because they weren't of us. And this is a warning for us. We need to understand, because I know we hear this and some of you are like, no, 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 Taylor, you don't understand. I had a friend, I had a family member. That's someone that I'm close to, and they, they grew up in the church, and at a young age, they made a profession of faith, and they were baptized, and, and for a few years, they were on fire from the Lord. Church, if we walk away from Jesus Christ, it's because we were never secure in Jesus Christ. Those who are truly in Christ, you have repented of your sin, you have turned from your sin, you have put your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've been indwelt by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. It doesn't just last for a week, or for a month, or for a decade, or for 50 years, it lasts from the moment until we see Jesus face to face. It doesn't mean we won't have seasons where we struggle. It doesn't mean we won't have seasons where we doubt. It doesn't mean we won't have seasons where we have questions. But we rest in the confidence of knowing this is the good news. If you are truly in Christ, he's going to see you through to the end. To say that he doesn't would, say, would be to say that he's a liar. Would say that he's not going to complete the work that he started. But he promises us here he will finish the work. And that's what Paul is reminding these people. He said the work he started in you, that work he did 10 years ago, through Lydia, through the slave girl, through the jailer. He said he's going to bring that to completion. As faithful as they've been, the Lord's not going to forsake them and he's not going to let them go and he calls them partakers of grace. And this word partakers is very similar to that word partners. He's saying that we are co-partners and companions in grace. They're partners with him in his imprisonment. They're partners with him in the the defense of the gospel, the confirmation of the gospel. And even though it may have caused them shame to be associated with Paul, they have not abandoned him. And so you hear Paul's affection for them in verse 8. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Church, understand, we're not partners in the gospel because we are partners first and foremost, ethnically or socioeconomically or socially or politically. We are partners in the gospel because God in his grace rescued us as fallen sinners who were desperately in need of a forgiving Savior. That is the foundation of our partnership. It's that common profession and confession of faith of what it is that God, through his son Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us in spite of the differences that are going to emerge outside of this. C.S. Lewis has said that to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I think this is so important for us in 2020 because this is, this is what's happening particularly in the political climate. As we get in this mentality and say, there's no way a follower of Jesus could support this. There's no way a follower of Jesus could support that. And listen, yeah, there's some character issues and there's some policies that absolutely need to be addressed through the lenses of God's word. But church, what binds us together primarily is the fact that we are sinners who have been saved by grace. And everything else needs to be filtered through that single confession. They are willing to bear the shame of Paul's imprisonment. They're not worried about how it makes them look that they're associated with him in spite of his trouble. And what this perfectly reflects is that Jesus Christ was willing to bear our shame and our sin on the cross. The way we treat other people, the way we speak to other people, it is a direct reflection of how it is we believe the Lord deals with us. How we speak, the tone of voice that we use, how we address concerns, how we treat those even who are our enemies. The Lord gave us instruction, you pray for them. Love them and pray for those who persecute you. 
Paul's defense of the gospel landed him in prison. We need this reminder, I think, week in and week out as we walk through this message series. But we've called this message series Invincible Joy because we want to understand that joy is not like happiness that's fleeting and circumstantial and constantly changing. Paul, following Jesus for him, was not exactly all rainbows and butterflies, right? I mean, he, he faced immense suffering and immense challenges that most of us have never even come to, to experience ourselves. And, and so every one of us who, who partake in the divine saving grace of God, we need to understand what it is we're getting ourselves into. It's not that we're going to have a life free of challenges. It's that we're going to have power in order to endure the challenges that we experience. But the Lord, the good news for us, has not just saved us for one single moment. The Lord has promised, no matter what you face, no matter what you experience, I will be with you and I will carry you through. If the Lord started the work of salvation in you, he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So very quickly as we close this morning, what can we do with this? As those who are partnered together in the gospel. What does it mean for us to partner together in the gospel as those who partake in the grace of God? First thing very simple Paul shows from this passage is that we can pray for the church. We can pray for the church. And, and, and listen, church, I've been guilty of this too. This is not praying that the church will finally see it our way. I've been guilty of this too. You've probably been guilty of this as well. We've got to be people of sacrifice who are willing to lay down our preferences for the sake of our mission to preach the gospel and make disciples. And Paul says here in verse 3, he says, He thanks God in all his remembrance of them, always in every prayer for them, making his prayer with joy. I think we can get so wrapped up in our preferences sometimes that we just take the church for granted. I know, Man, I've done this get so wrapped up in wanting things to be done our way, man, how long do we simply pause to thank the Lord for the church in prayer? To thank him for the faithful preaching of the gospel, to thank him for the community and fellowship of believers, to thank him for his provision, to thank him for all who are coming to know him. So we lift one another up, and so I just would challenge all of us, maybe this week, to just take five minutes every single way, every single day, and to thank the Lord in prayer for not just our church, but for the church for the ministry of the believers globally, this body of Christ that he's given here on earth. Second, we partner with the church. We're partners in the gospel. We partake of grace. So what we do is we partner together with the church. And listen, this is a message I just feel like I can't preach enough in 2020 for every follower of Christ. You need the church. You need the church. Now, for some, because of the challenges of this year, I think we're going to go through a season, maybe throughout the fall, that's just uh, rekindling a flame after a year of being scattered. For others, uh, gotten out of sync you know, Sunday, Sunday morning kind of fell off the calendar, and now it's been replaced with other things. And so maybe we're going to have to go through a season of recovering the priority of the church in our lives. For others, whether it's uh, our church family or another church family, it's going to mean uh, covenanting together in membership with the local church family and, and committing yourself to that body of believers. So we don't want to be sensationalists. We don't want to be mystics. We don't want to be individualist or idealist. We want to commit our broken, imperfect selves to a broken, imperfect church that has committed itself to magnifying the name of Jesus Christ. You cannot have Christianity without the church. There is no just me and Jesus in the Bible. It's always a we and Jesus. And we cannot say that we love Jesus and then say we don't need what Jesus says we need. And that's the church. So we partner together uh, for the sake of the gospel. Third is to simply partake in God's grace. Uh, th this is so important for us, you know, for, for those who are followers of Christ. And yeah, man, maybe you're in a season right now where you feel like your life is shattered and scattered in a million pieces. And it's just disconnected and it's all over the place. And you know that you getting yourself here is your own doing and it's your own fault. And you promised the Lord a hundred times you wouldn't do this. And yet you're right back in that exact same place again. And you listen to the lies of the enemy telling you he's not putting you together again. The Lord's going to finish what he started. 
He did not save you to abandon you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. And you can be confident that you can bring this to the Father, and he's going to pull you back together. But maybe even for the person here today, you convince yourself you're too far gone. Your life's too full of mistakes. It's too full of sin. It's too full of brokenness. I want you to hear me tell you this morning that the invitation for you is always going to be that regardless of how far you think you may have gone, how far you think you may have fallen, there is not one word of condemnation that the enemy has spoken over you that cannot be crushed at the foot of the cross. Jesus Christ extends salvation to all who will turn from their sin. And that offer is on the table for as long as there is breath in your body. The invitation for you is to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, to be declared innocent and blameless in his sight. But as partakers and as partners, fourth, I think Paul shows us here to persevere through trouble. He says of these believers here that they were his partners in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. It was a partnership that led Paul to prison. And so, so Paul, what we, we need to see all through Philippians as he's writing these words is the reminder that Paul's body was physically chained, but his soul was free. Paul had an unconquerable soul. Paul had the invincible joy that all of us desire to experience. We'll see this later in Philippians. There was absolutely nothing you could threaten Paul with. We'll see it in chapter 2. They go to Paul, they're like, quit talking about Jesus or we're going to put you to death. He's like, finally, I get to go be with the Lord. They're like, all right, we'll throw you in jail. He's like, boom, prison ministry. You just, you, he was bulletproof. There was nothing you could threaten him with, and this is what he puts on display here. And he, he calls all of us to persevere in the midst of these challenges. And the book, or the, the church in Philippi, and we see in this book that they were together with him in that defense and in that, con- and in that confirmation of the gospel. And so, church, make no mistake here. As Christians in the 21st century West, we do not remotely face the, the persecution and the suffering that the Apostle Paul was facing in the first century context here. But, but equally make no mistake whatsoever, if you are going to faithfully follow Jesus in our 21st century post-Christian, post-modern context, it is going to be costly. If you stand on the authority and the truth of God's word and you call truth, truth, you call good, good, and you call evil, evil, you will face the opposition of this world. We just run through the list here this morning. If you speak out against today as a follower of Christ who believes that all life has been made in the image of God, if you speak out against the modern day holocaust of abortion, the way you'll be branded is an opponent of women's rights. If you speak out in favor of biblical sexual ethics, even within many circles of the church today, you're going to be labeled as a bigot. Go to the opposite end of the spectrum. If you speak out against racial prejudice or injustice, or if you speak out for the protection of immigrants because they are human beings who've been made in the image of God, who should be traded humanely, you're going to be labeled some by as, as a liberal and as a progressive. But to make that conversation even more complicated, if you speak out against injustices, but in the same breath speak out against the worldly ideologies, like actual cultural Marxism, like actual critical race theory, you're going to be branded by many as a racist. If you speak out and stand up for the message of the gospel, you defend the gospel, the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus Christ alone is the only way to salvation, that every other religious path, it is not an agree to disagree because we're all on the same paths that are working our way to God. If you speak out and say that Christ alone is the only way to salvation, that every other religious system is the path to eternal condemnation, you will be called narrow-minded and radical and dangerous. And what our nation desperately needs in the 21st century is for followers of Christ to grow some spirit-infused steel in our spines who say, we're going to speak truth come what may, 
even if it doesn't perfectly toe the party line, even if it doesn't perfectly advance my political agenda, I'm going to call good good and evil evil regardless of who is committing the good and regardless of who is committing the evil because I have counted the cost of following Jesus Christ and you can throw me in jail but you will never touch my joy. That's what we need today. We need to count the cost and find that Jesus is worth it. He is infinitely worthy of our lives. And we can trust that regardless of what we might face because of the truth that we might speak or because of the sinners we might love, the one who started the work in us is going to carry us through. They can throw us in jail, but they can't take our joy. They can't touch our joy. You know, I know that sometime later on this week, no one's coming back to me with that airplane. I know it's going to happen. I know my son, he's, he's persistent. But very honestly, just as a father, just for the, the sake of my own personal gratification, now, like, I'm the type of person, like, I need to finish things. So I kind of hope he comes back. I might go find it myself after he goes to bed and put it back together. I don't know. We'll see. Th- th- this is what I know. If, if nothing else, it's for the sake of my reputation as the master Lego builder in my home, for the sake of my reputation as dad, you better believe that airplane's going to get finished. And we studied this a few weeks ago in in Psalm 23. Why does the Lord lead us in the paths of righteousness? He does it for his namesake. No matter how scattered you might feel, no matter how shattered you might feel, the Lord Jesus Christ has put his own name and reputation on the line and your salvation. You can rest in the confidence he's never going to let you go. He's never going to let you go. He's going to complete this work, but he's only going to complete that work through the fellowship of the body of the believers in the local church. And my prayer for this body of believers, we, listen, we can't reform the church globally. That's not up to us. We can focus right here on the people of Cross Community Church is that we would have an inseparable bond. That we've been people who are united by the grace of God, who have locked their arms in the partnership of the gospel, and that we would declare above all else in this season that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. That he alone is our hope of salvation. And we speak the truth in love, come what may. And maybe like Paul, one day we'll get all promoted to prison ministry together. And we will have the privilege of suffering together for the gospel and the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. So Father, as we close this morning, I I just ask, Lord, that you would solidify us. You would strengthen us and you would embolden us. Father, even those of us who may come in this room this morning who just feel just in a million pieces, either because of the the season that we're in or because of sin that's just taken over our lives. Father, would we humbly come to you this morning with the broken pieces of our lives and lay them at your feet, trusting that you're a good and loving Father who will put us back together because you're going to complete what you started. No matter how we might work against the work you're doing in our lives, no matter how many, if we are in you, we can rest confidently that you will finish what you've started. So, Father, this morning we rest in the perfect finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We rest in the promise of knowing that you're going to finish the work you've started in us. And, Lord, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be a people who are bold to speak truth, who persevere in trouble. This would not be a season where we cower and we back down and we refuse to speak truth to power. But that we would count up the cost and find that you are worth it. And know that there's nothing in this world that can throw at us that will rob us of our joy. So, Father, this morning be glorified as we sing. 
be glorified as we lift your name, as we declare your praise. And take these words to strengthen us and empower us and embolden us as we leave this place today. I ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together and sing as we close this morning. Let us be known.